If you've ever met someone who is genuinely thriving and wondered, what's their secret? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to The Marvelous Podcast with your hosts, Marta Kagan and Steph Ziegler. Hey, Steph. Hey, Marta. I am super excited for today's show. We've got a really special guest. Yep, we do. Really excited about him as well. So, Steph, when's the last time you did something that you were really scared of? Like pushed yourself, you know, to face a fear? Oh, yeah. That's a good one. For sure, it was going paragliding in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want to, but my husband's a big daredevil. And I was like, you know what? I'm here. It's beautiful. What's the worst that can happen? And I just breathed through it, kind of realized like, oh, shit, I'm only connected to a parachute. If something happens, this is not good. But I was with a guide and it was all it, it worked out fine. And I'm glad I did that. But definitely scary. Yeah. And especially if heights happens to be one of the things that just viscerally terrifies you, Mm -hmm. which I didn't realize they do, but yeah, I'm scared of heights. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think fear is something we all deal with and, or avoid Mm -hmm. (laughs) in different ways. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about today's guest, because um, he is literally dealing with his fear on a daily basis and dealing with it in a way that's not only courageous, but inspiring and impressive and I think something for us all to think about because there's small fears and there's big fears, mm-hmm. um, but fear is always with us. So I'm, I'm super interested to hear about how he mentally addresses that, not just, you know, in the physical world. Yeah. Totally. Our guest today is Justin Salas, who is a climbing enthusiast and self-described daredevil. Justin is a professional climber and competed and won the Paraclimbing World Championship in 2018. And he is now a six-time Paraclimbing National Champion. Justin has many other passions and is an accomplished chess player, having a love for solving complex problems, as well as a photography enthusiast. And he has managed to accomplish all of these things, despite the fact that he lost his vision at the age of 14. Mm -hmm. So Justin, welcome to the show. Would love to hear your story and how you've gotten to where you are. You know, it's a, it's an interesting development. I think just growing up with vision, you kind of picture life to go a certain way. And then something like this, there was such a huge curveball into your life and it can be, I guess, pretty challenging to course correct. In fact, climbing was never really even on the agenda. I was extremely talented at video games. I was extremely talented at BMX paintball and soccer. I like doing pretty much anything that would just be like under that active category, something that made me feel like I could become the best that I could be at it. I grew up pretty normal, four siblings, two brothers, two sisters two parents, tiny house, seven of us in a 900 square foot home. Oh, wow. One bathroom. Wow. (laughs) 
yeah, it, you know, it, it was challenging at times, you know, especially considering at the time my mom was a stay-at-home mom homeschooling all five kids. My dad was the sole provider. Money was, I mean, we weren't without, but it was really limited. If we wanted something, we really had to go get it ourselves. And that was something that was instilled in me pretty early on. My dad, I watched him work every day of his life. He had a really fantastic work ethic. And so that was instilled in me was this work ethic that I still carry with me today. I grew up next to the Tulsa International Airport. So every single day, 2 p.m. and 11 a.m., the F-16s, the Air Guard would take off. Mm. Uh, and there was a fleet of seven of them. And I would always count each fighter jet as it took off. And, you know, it became this thing where it was like me and my dad loved aerospace stuff. We, we got the radios. We knew every fighter jet by the tone of their, their engines and mm. um, what call signs they used and all these things. And I just fell in love with it. Wow. And so I wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, that, that was the goal and, uh, you know, whether or not, uh, that was going to work out, you know, it became apparent once I started experiencing vision problems that that probably wasn't going to be the case. So yeah. you're growing up in this household with lots of people and a clear sense of you need to work hard. You need to take care of yourself, independence, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You're obsessed with planes. <laughs> you that's want to right. be a fighter pilot. And that's kind of the plan, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then how does that start to change? Essentially, I started craving more freedom. I was very independent. Uh, bikes were that freedom for me. I started experiencing some strange things with my vision around the latter half of my 13th year. Um, but it was, it was pretty insignificant. It was one of those things where like, if uh, there was a good day, I might be able to pick up on it or I guess a bad day, rather I would be able to pick up on it. But there was a series of events that led to this point around age 13. It was my 13th birthday in the hospital. I had, um, a MRSA staph infection in my hip joint. Mm. and it almost killed me. I had a fever of 106 and it was continuing to rise. I go into the hospital. They finally figure out what's going on. At this point, I'm a septic. Mm. So I was rushed into emergency surgery once they figured out what was going on. Then I think they evacuated like six cc's of infection from my hip joint. And then I was on a antibiotic drip and this is kind of gnarly. So uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with a pick line. And for those that don't know, a pick line is essentially an IV, but it's a large diameter IV that goes into your arterial vein in your arm. And it is essentially it's a very long IV going all the way up into your chest. And it is designed to deliver medicine straight shot into your heart area. So yeah. uh, they use that delivery system to administer uh, vancomycin. Uh, vancomycin is one of two antibiotics that could kill MRSA or staph. Mm. And um, it's potent stuff. Like it'll melt plastic basically. Shit. Um, <laughs> and so I was on that for a long time. I started experiencing like blurry vision one day. This was probably six to eight months after that whole hospital uh, event. But I describe it as like looking through a screen door. Wow. So it sounds like at this point, the screen door vision was kind of the tipping point. 
Can you tell us what happens next with the progression of the vision loss and how it started to impact you or what you were noticing? At this point, I couldn't see down the street very well, but it was like hard to articulate why I couldn't see very well down the street. I started noticing that I couldn't see the moon very well. It was almost like there was a piece of the middle missing. Mm. I started noticing that I couldn't see certain signs when I was out riding bikes. I remember I was out riding uh, my bike with a friend and looked across the street at a giant sign. I mean, this sign would have been the size of a house. Uh, Normally, um, I'd be able to see it just fine. Uh, I couldn't see it anymore. Wow. And I remember telling a friend like, oh, I can't see that sign. And he was just like, yeah, bullshit, dude. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) that thing's huge. Teenage boys. (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, no, you know, it's true. I I can't, I can't see it, but. Okay. Well, let me ask, can I ask a stupid question? So you, you can see the physical structure of the sign. Yes. It's that you can't read what's, you can't see the words or what pictures are on it. Is that. It's, you- yeah. Yeah. I guess um, my vision presents was though I don't have any central vision at all, basically, mm. but maybe like 10% left just light in contrast. Mm. Um, but my peripheral works fairly normally. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I start noticing the middle of things missing basically. Um, Wild. And that's why it was so weird for me to like even comprehend it. It's like my mind was adapting as the vision was changing. So I started just doing things without realizing it. Yeah. So at this point in time, it seems like you're starting to adapt to the world around you, working with your vision as it's presenting. What was the major tipping point when you started to realize that this was a much more serious issue than what you initially thought it to be? There was a moment when I was out riding bikes, I was absolutely having a hard time seeing. And that's like when it like truly clicked into place. We were trying to cross the street and it was me and a bunch of other friends and they all crossed the street for whatever reason. I like wasn't able to fast enough to keep up or something. I got stuck in the middle median. I decided to go ahead and try and cross the street. Uh, I heard one of my friends say, you're good. It's clear. And so I crossed the street, but then the light changes and I get stuck in the median in an intersection between four lanes of traffic. And I realized at this moment, like, holy shit, I can't see well enough to cross the street. Mm. Um, and so it was like this like pinnacle moment for me where I realized that there is vision loss bad enough at this point that it's keeping me from functioning at a normal level. Okay. So that must've been terrifying. <laughs> um, so you cross the street, you get stuck, you realize that your vision is much worse than you had realized. And how does this impact you? And what I found so interesting about that moment was it was a situation where as soon as that happened, I like couldn't ride home on my own. Um, I like had to be very vocal about the fact that I was having problems seeing to my friends. I couldn't understand. I mean, we're all 14, 15. So it's like, it's hard to like really be able to say like, I'm going blind. I, you know, uh, like it's just not what you usually hear in that age group, you know, just, yeah. (laughs) And so that moment was, uh, you know, a big one for me because I realized that this is a, a real thing. We carefully rode our bikes home and I told my parents, hey, I, you know, I, I'm really having a hard time seeing. I can't see very well anymore. We went to the eye doctor. And we did the normal eye tests. Uh, my vision started showing that I was 2200. And my mom was asking the eye doctor, is that number normal? Like he used to be corrected up to like 2040, 2060, but now you can't get him past 2200. 
For those that don't know, Legally Blind is 2200. That's where they actually give you the diagnosis of Legally Blind. It was six hours in the doctor's office that day. Every test that he had, we performed. Wow. Nothing was coming back conclusive. He finally was like, you know, it's beyond me. You need to go see a neural ophthalmologist. So went to them. Wait, can I pause for a second and just ask like your mental state through this, right? Like I'm, I'm guessing that up until that moment at the median, you weren't too worried. You were just like, like you said, you were just adapting, right? You're just like, mm-hmm. oh, whatever. And then you have that moment. Did that shift your, your mental state? Did it shift? Like, did you become scared? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So day one, it's so new. It's discovery. It's like, who knows what this next chapter is going to bring. Maybe this is a fluke. Maybe it's fixable. Like, who knows? So I I guess I wasn't really that scared at day one. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it was raising red flags, but again, like, as a kid who's used to getting the shit kicked out of them, you just think, oh, it's just like my hip surgery. Like they'll fix it somehow. Mm-hmm. So found what we thought was a good doctor. They did a blood test and those tests were sent to the National Eye Institute. At the same time, I was seeing the folks at the Dean McGee. Mm-hmm. These folks are top tier. And the doctor basically read over the, the blood test and said it's inconclusive. Mm-hmm. We do know it's an optic neuropathy which essentially means that the optic nerve is either dying or in the process of dying. Whereas a normal optic nerve is going to be pink and healthy. When you look at it through medical devices, you see blood flow, looks healthy. Mm. Mine's white, essentially. But it's very interesting because it's focused on the cone cells. So central vision, color vision, focusing vision, things like this. So the rod cells that operate your peripheral vision, night vision, reaction, that stuff's still intact. It wasn't until a couple of years ago, I started going to another eye doctor and they thought maybe this would have been caused by the antibiotic they used. Oh, wow. Very anecdotal. Um, but mm-hmm. the vancomycin has been known to cause nerve neurosis or the swelling of particular nerves in the body. I know it's caused hearing loss for some folks, and I think there might be another reported case of vision loss. Again, all this is very anecdotal. Mm-hmm. The doctor that did that research asked, was there ever a day where it looked like you were looking through a screen door? And I was like, <laughs> ding, 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 yes. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> uh, so that's the closest we have come to the thought process of where this all could have come from. Mm. The Dean McGee Eye Institute were basically saying like, we don't know. It's probably stress. You should de-stress him. Oh and I was like, bruh, <laughs> I'm literally stressed because I'm losing my sight, not for any other reason. They're like, pull him out of school, like do all these things, make him comfortable. And I was just like, y'all don't even have the courage to say like, we don't know what's going on. And that was the day too, that they said it's a, what they believe to be a hereditary disease passed down through the mother. Um, essentially indicating it's a genome that they haven't mapped and that they don't know why, and it'll never be fixable. Hmm. So that was the first day, the first diagnosis that I got of optic neuropathy that is not curable. And they said, you need to learn to live with this. That must have been some really hard news to receive. And I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. After hearing that it was something they told you you have to live with, 
How did you begin to process that? Can you take us to the car ride home with your mom and share how that experience was for both of you? That was a rough ride home. (laughs) Yeah, it was about a two hour drive back to my, my parents' house. And man, yeah, that was grim. That basically started the the depression. That day was the change of course from this is interesting. Maybe there's a way they can fix it. You know, who knows what's going on to fuck. This is really real. You had all these thoughts of what life was going to be like. You're trying to process the reality that that's not going to be the case. I don't even know if I understood how to unpack it. It was more over trying to digest the, that reality. And I didn't really have a whole lot to say to my mom. You know, she was doing her best to comfort me, not saying it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Cause mm-hmm. it's not, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> um, but moreover, like we'll figure out a new way to do school. You know, it's not perfect, but we're going to make the best of it. We're going to try and make life from changing too drastically. I imagine that the impact of this news must've set off an avalanche of change. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, Justin? Ultimately, it changed so much about life that it was like, okay, I can't do school anymore. Um, can't ride my bike anymore. All the sports activities I was doing, can't do that anymore. Goals mm-hmm. out the window. Everyone around me in my neighborhood was just talking about it. All my peers had no idea like how to even broach the subject. I got made fun of a ton like, oh, Justin can't see that, Like, can't see this. At the time, too, my parents had just purchased us a car, me and my older brother, so we could start learning how to drive. That went out the window. Talk about getting the um, the needle getting pulled off the record, right? Oh, yeah. No, with the classic sound and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> I think the moment in which like things started getting really stressful for me was when I started trying to keep on pressing on through the vision loss. It was hard to communicate to people because I could still get around somewhat normally, but I couldn't see well enough to do school. I couldn't see any papers or faces or like every time you look at something, it vanishes. So if you see something out of the corner of your eye and you're just like letting your eyes go into a soft focus, you can kind of get an idea of your environment. But as soon as you like snap too, it's gone, it vanishes. What did start to happen with your school at this point? How did you move forward from here? I remember I continued to try and do school at a private school we were going to. I started a week after the diagnosis. All the teachers didn't believe me. And I was like, didn't the principal inform you? I'm just auditing until we figure out the best way for accommodations to be made. And they were like, you should try. And I was like, I can't see the book. And they opened it and slid it in front of me. And they were like, try. And I just said, no. Um, and it got worse. I told my mom, you know, Hey, I'm not going back to school. And she was like, you have to. And I said, ground me forever. Then I'm not going back. (laughs) And, uh, she was like, okay. I told her everything that had, of course had been going on. And she was like, I can't believe they're still trying to force you to see things you can't see. And she see, she spoke with them and they're like, well, he can continue auditing. And at that point I was just like, nah, fuck them. You know? So what happened after you left school? and the reality of your situation started to really sink in. I definitely reclused from life. I stopped riding bikes, stopped hanging out with friends. My friends didn't understand. A lot of them made fun of me. I mean, kids are savages. So I just kind of started keeping to myself. At the time, I myself carried a really devout faith. I still do, but it's just different. It's evolved, uh, deconstructed. 
so I just spent a lot of time like reading the Bible, being very open-minded when it comes to theology and studying that and kind of just using this as coping mechanisms, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was an athlete, had always been, couldn't play soccer on a team anymore. Got out of that, uh, stopped riding BMX. It was a tough, tough, basically four years. Okay. So four years is a long time, especially at that age. And especially when you can't do the things anymore that used to bring you so much joy. What was the turning point for you at the end of those four years that started to propel you in the new direction of life that we know you ended up taking? At this time, my buddy Bo, who I'd been riding BMX with for a long time, she had moved away. And one day, a couple of years later from the diagnosis, I was playing soccer again or trying to. I was kicking the ball around in my front yard and I heard a bike rolling down the street and I heard, yo, yo, Jay, yo, it's Bo. And I was like, yo, you back in town? And he was like, yeah, we moved back in just a couple of days ago. And so uh, we sat down on the curb in front of my house and I just explained everything to him. Because mm-hmm. when he knew me, my vision was around 2200, maybe a little better. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by now, my vision had solidified at 20 over 1200, um, literally a thousand times worse. It had stabilized at this point with about 10% of my central vision remaining. I was basically telling him, I can't see anymore, dude. Like I can't ride and I haven't ridden since that day. Basically, I don't know what I'm doing. Just hanging out really. And I'll never forget it. You know, he paused for a moment and just said, do you want to go ride? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wait, rewind. Did you hear what I just said, Bo? (laughs) Seriously. Um, (laughs) I didn't know what to say. I was like, it's kind of speechless, like, oh, do not hear me. How are we going to do this? I gave my bike away. I can't see. I can't drive. None of this is possible. And he was like, we can still try. So I started learning to follow his cassette because, you know, BMX is great in the sense that all of our cassettes are super loud. And uh, I just listened to his voice. We'd talk about what the process was going to be like and how best for him to orientate me and and this being the genesis of a sight guide relationship to a blind individual. And, uh, it, you know, it didn't come easily. I ran into the back of parked cars. I'd get, I'd clothesline myself on wires. I'd hit street poles all the time, right Ouch. out in front of cars. <laughs> I just got the shit kicked out of me with BMX. At the time, one of my favorite BMX riders was this English dude named Harry Main. And his motto was always, if I can just scare myself every single day, then I'm always improving every single day. As soon as I saw that interview with that guy, I was like, I'm like the living proof of that. (laughs) It hit me pretty hard, you know? So I was like, yeah, you know, I literally am shitting my pants every single time I ride my bike. It's like hypertension, you know? Like you're scared, but you're doing it anyway. Yeah, quite literally shaking fear's hand and meeting it head on because without the ability to like overcome that i would have just fallen back into the normal just sitting in my room not doing anything you know by by this time i'm super bored so the fear is a pretty welcoming feeling it's not numbness Mm -hmm. anymore it's like Mm. you know at the end of the day despite all the fearness there was like a sense of accomplishment so that that was really important for sure so fear is pushing you to try new things that scare you which is good we we like that kind of fear (laughs) How else 
did fear serve you? Because fear ultimately became a thought process towards progression. If there wasn't fear, I was doing it wrong. Um, mm. Like I wasn't pushing hard enough. I wasn't advancing there. So that was my mantra, basically, you know, always progressing. Fear is the mind killer. How can I be better than I was yesterday? But going forth, even though you're like going to your death, basically, is what it feels like. <laughs> uh, I guess the Spanish yeah. word for it would be a muerte, um, to the death every mm -hmm. single day. It kind of instilled in me a warrior mindset. The warrior mindset mentality is super powerful. And it obviously led you down other paths and pushed you to face your fear. How did this mindset lead you to a climbing career? Grew up with this kid uh, named Nick who was starting to get into climbing and he was like, you should come try climbing. And uh, I was like, it seems kind of like something you would want your vision for, you know, <laughs> like it's pretty <laughs> life <help>. and death. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, no, you really don't need your vision to, um, to climb. And I was like, it's just not happening, dog. And years went by and I started getting more into outdoor stuff, hiking, hiking, camping, where I would go camping and stuff with my dad and fishing and with friends and stuff. And my friends at the time were like, you know, what's the next step from hiking? And I remember thinking like, you know, climbing, <laughs> climbing's cool. I went back with a friend. We took the top rope course. Um, the instructor, Matt Frederick, he was basically just like, how can I help? And I was like, I can't see what you're doing at all. <laughs> 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 You're going to have to narrate all of this for me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he was a G because he was immediately, okay, let me think. And he went quiet for a second. He was like, we can do this, you know? <laughs> and so awesome. he immediately went into tactile teaching and taught me how to tie the knot and belay safely. And we went over communication and yeah, that moment was pretty big for me because it was like, this is super possible. So we just started going as much as we could. In fact, I started going every single day that I could. At the time, I wasn't working. I was past my senior year in high school. I literally wasn't doing anything in life. This was a big question mark for me in life because I uh, didn't know what my goals were going to be, what I wanted to do in life. Uh, mm -hmm. A one-year plan was skeptical. Five-year plan was a big LOL. Uh, <laughs> um, the 10-year plan wasn't even a thought in my mind, you know? And, and has so, that changed for you, Justin? Like, do you, do you have one year, five year, 10 year plans now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I, I, I feel like inherently I still fly by the seat of my pants. Cause I was going through a, such an uncertain time of my life. I feel like I'm predisposed to be kind of an individual that just reacts. So a big area for me of growth is planning is mm -hmm. learning how to have bigger goals and, implementing daily habits where every single day I can be 1% better than I was the day before, like being a homeowner within the next five years or being a Red Bull athlete or being the first blind climber to climb this grade, or maybe it doesn't have anything to do with my performance, but like maybe it has more to do with encouraging others to overcome situations that are adverse, like I was dealing with as well. There's this level of daily measurement of the 1%, right? You have to be present to notice 1% because 1% is not a big shift. And comparing mm -hmm. it to just yesterday really keeps you in the here and now. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you literally ask yourself that question? Is that a ritual or a habit? So just kind of being aware is something that I've learned since the vision loss. I started becoming more mindful because it like... 
wasn't a scenario where I was being stimulated visually all the time, paying attention to my own thoughts ultimately kind of became a coping mechanism, escaping into my mind. It gave me a lot of opportunity to get into my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I tend to run anxious inherently. It's just part of our family. So I spent a lot of time overthinking everything, overanalyzing, and it can be very stressful with borderline panic attacks and all these things. And the the woes of life ultimately i started unpacking my whole worldview um my faith i read this book called zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance the context of philosophy mixed with an eastern religious approach cured more from buddhist and taoist principles really helped me understand how to be more present what meditation was all about how does it align to my western religion and ultimately started changing how I operate. Justin, can you explain to us how it changed the way you operate? Normally, I spent a lot of time feeling things around me tactilely and listening and carefully because, you know, even to know who's standing near you, oftentimes people have different sounds for their footsteps. Uh, and I started recognizing people off their footsteps and their tones of voice and their body language and needing to memorize every single layout of every room I've ever been in, memorizing every step that I take. I know just out of habit now that there's five flights of stairs and every single flight has nine steps, except for the very bottom one, there's 18. Everything about life is calculated, very analytical. It became a way for me to meditate on the fly or constantly. So same with climbing, you know, climbing's moving meditation. It kind of puts you in a thought process of am I overgripping? Is the each finger in the right place? Is my foot in the right place? Am I doing this move the right way? Executing perfectly off of memory. So when it comes to understanding what 1% feels like physically, I can tell pretty inherently at this point. So this 1% of improving every day really paid off. <laughs> Tell us more about how long you've been a professional climber and what that's like for you, Justin. I've been training at a professional level for about eight years now. Translating that into a daily practice, it's just like kind of holding yourself to a standard that is yesterday, I know that I didn't do right by myself in these given areas. How can I be better tomorrow? Yeah, it's kind of that growth mindset, right? Where it's not about beating yourself up for what you didn't do. It's about looking to, you know, how do you keep growing from there, right? Yeah. What's the, what's the lesson or the value in that? Well, and I think, yeah, a lot of it too stems from like, I feel like I started climbing too late. I feel like I was so held back going through blindness that I felt like I uh, am blooming too late. I always feel like I'm playing catch up. So there's always imposter syndrome. There's always this urge to be progressive and go as hard as you possibly can because you're trying to make up for lost time. And so there's a side of that too. That's a balance between feeling imposter syndrome demonstratively versus using it as a tool to better yourself. Yeah. Yep. And P.S. Who doesn't feel imposter syndrome somewhere in their lives? Seriously. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm finding out more that like, a lot of my friends deal with imposter syndrome, and I, I think I just had to deal with it more head on because I'm like stuck in between folks that are completely blind and folks that are legally blind. 
Mm. And it's like hard to kind of fit in between. And I often don't know how to even categorize myself. Uh, I've learned at this point, that the blind community, we all just say blind. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's just the easiest thing. If you tell someone you're visually impaired, they're like, I've never heard those two words put together before. <laughs> I don't know what the heck. And if you tell someone you're illegally blind, they're like, oh, my mom's legally blind. She just wears glasses. Have you tried that? And I'm like, <laughs> Dude, you know, great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, you know, mental fitness and how you think about that term. You know, obviously with Marvelous, we're trying to make it easier for people to deal with stuff, essentially. Do you feel like you had some practice or something someone taught you or something that you leaned on at the time? I think oftentimes, It's doing the hard thing, even though you know it's hard and still going through with it. It's easy to say and hard to do. Um, (laughs) Sure, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it can be as simple as that, but like, it's also about making it approachable. You know, what's something bigger than me? It was like setting aside your own selfish desires Mm -hmm. whenever someone elevates themselves to be better than they were yesterday, not only for themselves, but for a greater good. So having a work ethic is important and having a strong willpower is extremely important um, because, you know, no one's going to do it for you. It's something that can ultimately be cultivated. What advice would you give to our listeners to cultivate this work ethic or willpower to keep improving every single day? You know, you can start small. These things have a compounding effect. If you've been practicing this for a long time and you're finally met with a moment where, this is the hardest moment I've ever had to deal with in life. You've kind of prepared yourself for that because you're only doing something you don't want to do every single day. Really, life is about a million tiny moments. I think that's a beautiful way to kind of articulate what you're made of is those little decisions to do the right thing, to do the 1%. Well, and that's the thing. Like a lot of people tell me, uh, oh, you rock climb? Like I could never do that. I'm not special enough. And I'm like, well, it's not like we just start out like that right. <laughs> for, for most of us. It's, it's called mental wedging. You do a little bit that makes you uncomfortable every time you go out and practice your art. And it's, it's very applicable to life too. You know, if you're always scaring yourself 1% every day, you can prepare for the big moments a little bit every, every day. Do you ever have those moments where you're like, I can't, I can't give you 1% today or like, Oh God, every day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Honesty. I love it. Yeah. So practically speaking, how do you keep going? Like what's, what's the dialogue in your head or how do you Mm -hmm. flip that switch? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe a lot of folks can, can, uh, reciprocate this emotionally, like I mentioned, I run really anxious. Um, Mm. like, you know, constantly second guessing the things that you say to your peers, like, Oh, I shouldn't have said that they probably took that the wrong way. Mm. If you're the type of individual like myself, that is always second guessing themselves, that has a lot of self deprecating inner monologue, Mm -hmm. you know, the only way forward is to kind of meet it head on and acknowledge it and don't necessarily try and shove it away. Mm. If you're shoving it away, you're not actually dealing with the root cause of the problem. And what does that look like on a daily basis for you? What that looks like on a daily basis for me is essentially understanding that I'm running anxious today or understanding that I feel slightly depressed today or whatever the case may be. And then doing something that I enjoy that's going to like lift my spirits a little bit and make me feel 
you know, today is not lost, you know, it's like, be okay with sitting with yourself in silence. Cause I think a lot of folks are too afraid to even listen to their own monologue. They're always distracting themselves with social media and music and podcasts. And not that any of these things are inherently bad, but if you can't even stomach to sit with your own thoughts for five minutes, you probably need to get reacquainted with your own thought process and come to enjoy who you are as a person and not feel like you're always being influenced by other people. I love one of the things you said in there was acknowledging that you're feeling this way, like acknowledging that you're having one of those days where you're like, I'm not up to the 1%. Um, That moment, I think, of acknowledging is so important and powerful. And that's one of the things that we tend to not want to do. I can't fix it necessarily right now. There's nothing I need to do about it. I just need to say, Hey, I see you. And then do the thing, do whatever is the thing, do the 1%, like just do it anyway. Um, well, yeah. Even if you're tilted in one day, one direction uh, for the day and it feels lost, even one action can redirect the whole course of the day. Even if you don't want to go do the thing, go do it anyway. Maybe I sound like David Goggins at this point, like (laughs) stop being a little bitch and go do it. And the majority of people, when they actually go and do something, they feel better. Yeah. They feel accomplished. And no, for sure. At this point, it's like it course corrected my whole worldview, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, the worst thing that could happen did happen and it wasn't that bad. It re-sculpts your mind and kind of gets you out of those neural pathways. So yeah, yeah. um, So stop being a little bitch and just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm curious, what are you most proud of? Yeah. I mean, winning the world championships in, in Innsbruck is something I never thought I'd be able to even say world champion rock climber. (laughs) It is fucking amazing. (laughs) I gotta say like, like it's amazing for someone that has perfect vision. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm just an Oklahoma kid that Climbing was never even a thought until someone suggested that I should try it. And it just evolved into this thing that ultimately has completely re-sculpted my life. I take all the things that I've learned from climbing and put them into daily practices and overcoming fear is like a big part of that. Cause you know, when you're super high up off the ground and you can't find a hold and you have to be patient with yourself and slowly search for it. So overcoming challenge, honestly, is something that I I enjoy more than anything. Winning the world championships was awesome, but ultimately knowing that I do ride by myself every single day is probably one of the biggest ones for me. The only reason I started competing was because maybe my story could help somebody else. It's holding yourself to the highest of standards, holding those around you to a high standard, but not freaking out at them, not, not being malicious towards someone if they fail you. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's your next big goal or the next big thing you're going to scare yourself with? (laughs) (laughs) Well, every day is that, I guess, oh, there's a bigger answer here. Last week I was riding my bike to work and I ran into the fence, so... <laughs> even ju- even just riding to work is an accomplishment. That's that's the moment, you know. Even just like oh, like I'm late for work, but I'm riding to work. This is awesome. I'm yeah. still yeah. like tears coming out of my eyes, scared. I'm still yeah. going to work. I'm still being independent. That's that's what I'm after. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like this year is gonna. It's planning to be like a pretty big year for me. So I'm turning 30 this year. I have a film coming out this year called The Blind Ascensionist. It's going to be a short film about my life 
competition climbing. I have nationals coming up and I have three world cups to do a world championship planning on doing maybe a film tour, maybe doing some public speaking engagements, which I'm really passionate about. For me, I'm stepping into this scenario in life where things seem a little bit too far to grasp. The mountain seems too big to climb, but like in climbing, we just say, you know, one handhold at a time, you know, don't, don't let it feel so big that it feels, you know, we are analysis by per or paralysis by analysis, you know, I'll leave everybody with this quote that sticks with me is fear is the mind killer. So Amen. Uh, I'll let folks uh, figure out where that one's from. Hey, Marta. Hey, Steph. That was, that was really cool. He's such a cool guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I loved learning more about him and his story and understanding his determination and how he just continues to put one foot in front of the other and improve 1% each day. I think that is so important and I, I want to do that too now. Yeah. And that's, that's like an attainable objective for people, right? I think one of the things that stops us is this idea of like, I have to change my life. I have to do these huge things, right? And it sort of gets you into this state of inertia where you can't move forward, but 1%, I could do 1%. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that also applies to his attitude towards fear, right? Like we all have fears. Um, obviously that's a driving force in many of our lives, but facing it sometimes you know, facing it sometimes can be overwhelming, but again, taking it in small doses, right? Like starting small, just thinking about the next handhold, right? That that metaphor of how he uses his approach to climbing and applies it to life, I think was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I, I think this is one that people can like you mentioned, instantly apply without feeling overwhelmed. You know, it's not being a hundred percent better, even 50% better. It's just a little bit better than the day before. Yeah. A little bit more brave, mm -hmm. a little bit more presence. Um, yeah. All really good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. We will see you next week on the Be Marvelous podcast. Have a marvelous week. Have a question or suggestion for a future episode? Call or text the Be Marvelous hotline at 617-444-9275. That's 617-444-9275. And if you're enjoying the Be Marvelous Mental Fitness Podcast, why not leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts? We love reviews. And also, reviews are how new listeners find out about us. Thanks. Thanks.